This is The Ignition Show. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to or welcome back to our podcast. My name is Chris Jansen, host of The Ignition Show, where our aim is to create meaningful conversations with switched on people about things that matter. Matter in the pursuit of your potential and igniting the flame within you to live your best and full life. When I reflect on the year that was and all the conversations that I've had with my private clients and in workshops, there's no doubt that there is one big theme. While the issues that people bring to the conversation are varied, dissatisfaction in their work or career, not taking care of their body enough, desiring more in their relationships, or maybe craving to take their performance to the next level in some way, what underpins all of that is a real honest desire to live in more congruence with who they want to be and how they want to show up in their world. Tactical strategies for improving their outward actions are essential, of course, but the greatest transformations, in fact, the greatest sense of liberation for anybody, being free to rise up to your absolute potential, always takes the path through revealing the authentic you. So today I'm delighted to bring to you a conversation with my good friend, Alan Kleinhans. Not only does Alan bring a ton of truth bombs into our chat, but he also comes from profound experiences. Growing up in apartheid South Africa, he saw things that young boys should never have to see. Serving in the military during a civil war brought him extraordinary challenges, and his battle with substance abuse took him further away from his truth. That is, until he woke up. Now, after many years of deep personal work and liberating himself from his past, Alan is sharing his message with the world as a high-demand speaker and performance coach. His area of expertise includes self-awareness, leadership, and communication, yet perhaps Alan's true gift is helping people go deeper to truly understand who they are and who they ultimately can become. I love Alan's style. He is direct, transparent, and thought-provoking. His intense, authentic style on stage keeps his audience riveted and has earned him rave reviews globally. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and I hope it provokes you in some way to explore the real authentic you in the year ahead. Enjoy the conversation. Alan, so good to have you on the show today. Welcome to The Ignition Show. Thanks, Chris. Great to be with you, my friend. Yes, and thank you very much for taking time on your your transatlantic journey on your way to... uh, to an event in Florida, we really appreciate you making the time here, and and it's a you know it's a fascinating time of year. I always find it fascinating, and maybe you do too. You know the the turn of the new year. It's it's an arbitrary time, but it's a time where people often set out plans or ambitions or goals or you know just recalibrate themselves for making the year ahead much better than the year that just happened, or maybe the years that have happened. Yes. What, what, what's your sense of you know when people want to when people want to embark on a new year? What do you think are the, some of the, the fundamentals that people really need to consider to really transform or make it an ama- amazing year? Uh, and what are some things that people maybe underappreciate and, and forget to think about or, or don't realize is going to be part of, the, part of the recipe for success? Yeah, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, one would love to think that most people are getting ready to plan 2020 uh, towards the end of the year. But the sad truth is, is that most people don't do that until, you know, maybe New Year's Day or after the new year started, but it's a fantastic way to prep for the new year is to do it before the, the current year ends. And I think the best way to do that is to, first of all, to celebrate the current year. I always tell people to go through the current year from the beginning of this year. So for instance, if someone was listening to this and they wanted to really prep for 2020 and make sure they get the best out of 2020 and themselves, then first thing do sit down and highlight all the high points of 2019 and all the celebrations that you can really remember and lock back into your memory and celebrate those and then that would set you up nicely to then create you know what do you want to create in 2020 because um we forget to do that i think a lot of people forget to do that yeah. 
uh, they forget to celebrate, you know, the high points of the current year. And um, that's a great foundation, I think, is then to be creative about, okay, what do you want to do in 2020? And next year, you know, as you say, it's coming up very quickly. It's around the corner. And to answer your question specifically about what can people do to make sure that next year is the best year ever. And, you know, we hear this all the time, as you and I were chatting about, you know, everyone is always saying, okay, make it, how are you going to make this your best year yet? And I think, you know, what I tell people is don't overwhelm yourself. You know, um, I often find that people set too many goals. Um, it's always good to pick maybe three or four major goals that you want to highlight next year that you want to create and want to, want to really achieve and then break those down into smaller steps. And then what you can do is you can really focus on those four key goals that you want to make happen in, in different aspects of your life. And then also look at different areas of your life, I think, and then maybe pick one major outcome that you'd like to achieve in the different areas of your life, you know, in your relationship, in your health, in your money, your business, your personal development or your spiritual development. Um, and maybe even a fun goal, something you'd like to achieve in terms of your fun goals, something you haven't done for a while. And then remember also that when we are planning the future, we often come from the past. And that's an, you know, that what that does is it sets us up to repeat the past. Mm. Uh, you know, we, when we come from the past, we end up repeating it. So it's, it's really important to get into a creative state of mind. And, you know, what can you create from fresh? You know, what can you really create from out of nothing, really, that maybe you haven't done yet? And I think. Most importantly for me, if I think about 2020, and I, I've told all my clients the same thing, is, you know, how can you go even deeper in terms of who you're going to become next year? Uh, because, you know, we are all primed to be achievers, et cetera, and we all want to achieve at the highest level, and we all want to make sure that we're successful. However, you know, what we forget about when we are achieving and focusing on success is we forget about the deeper aspect of being alive, you know, the, the, the deeper meaning of being alive and, and who we're going to become in the process from a much deeper perspective. And I think that in order to be truly successful, I don't think you can be truly successful year on year. You cannot ramp up every year if you are not making sure that you are grounding yourself in a, in a deep spiritual practice, um, which is about really recognizing, you know, who you are at the highest level, your authentic self. Because otherwise what we do is we just keep coming from the past, you know, and then just keep repeating. And then it's just about achieving, a, a, you know, it's all about goals. It's about, you know, you know um, you know, owning things, materialistic things. And then, you know, what happens is, you know, you can do that year on year, but then I find, you know, people get 10, 15, 25 years down the road and that's, and they haven't really discovered who they really are. So that's yeah. something I think that everyone should focus on next year is that, you know, what is your next year going to be about in terms of who you're going to become and how you can align yourself with your authentic self. So that's yeah. a long answer to your question, but uh, I think it sums it up nicely for me in terms of, you know, what I'm focusing on, what I'm encouraging my clients to focus on. Yeah, no, I think it's a great, uh, a great tee up for our conversation here. And I agree with you that, you know, uh, focusing on a, hand, a small handful of major goals or outcomes that you want to create is very important. And I, I think what I take away from what you're saying there is really important just to bring some sort of structure to your thinking. And a lot of times people just kind of go on a whim or kind of go with what's top of mind, but to bring some structure to both look back and look forward is very important. But I do want to, I do want to go deeper with you. And I know your passion is, is really helping people, guiding people, or maybe even inspiring people to really understand who they are at their most authentic core, their, their true self. Yes. So for someone who's, um, how would you warm someone up to that thought? What, does someone, what do people need to perhaps think about or reflect on um, as they start to explore who mm. they are truly and, and why, does that, why does that even matter? Yeah, it's a great question, Chris. And, and um, if I 
draw from the example that I use in when I when I when I address an audience. You know, any audience that I'm standing in front of. You know, when I first come onto the stage, you know, introduce myself, and then in order to warm them up to that subject, you can't just open up that subject immediately because a lot of people that you know, it's it's um it's a subject that people have to be eased into. So I love the question because what I do is I first start talking about dreams and goals, and and I always ask people, you know. You know, everyone's got dreams and everyone's got goals, you know, and how many of you want to make those dreams real? And everyone puts their hand up and uh, most people do anyway. Uh, but then I say, well, what stops people from living their dreams? And then I move into the area that, um, you know, that everybody experiences trauma. We have all experienced trauma as kids. Where there's different levels of trauma. There's different intensities of trauma. Uh, you know, sometimes it's very mild and other times it's very intense. But we have all experienced trauma. And the problem with trauma, what it does in the human body is to create shame. And shame is associated to humiliation. So as adults, you'll find that most adults are really afraid of humiliation. They're afraid of being humiliated. That's why they're afraid of failing. Because if they fail, what does that mean? And who's going to find out? And if people find out, what will that mean? What will they say? So we carry that trauma from our young years, our earliest years, into our adult life. And most people do not, they do, not do the healing work that's necessary. So that's why I say success is fantastic. It's great to succeed. You know, we all want to succeed. We all want to make money. We all want to have a great life. We want to own nice things. We want to be able to travel nicely. We want to treat our families to great things. However, when you are succeeding and you're achieving and you're not dealing with your stuff at a deeper level, then your stuff's going to end up dealing with you, whether you like it or not. So at some point in your life, it's good to get down into the nitty gritty of your healing process. And healing is a messy subject because you've got to go back and look at all the stuff that you haven't processed yet. That's still in your unconscious. That's getting in the way or perhaps has helped you to shape your identity where you might be an achiever, you might be a winner for sure, but then you still, there's going to be a part of you that you're neglecting. And so you can only deal with that if you are willing to go into the healing process. So that's when I bring up the subject of, you know, uh, spiritual psychology, because, you know, we have access to the mind on three different levels, the conscious mind first, which is creative by nature, but it becomes very critical by nurture in a very, very young age. You know, by the age of two children are really, learning about negatives they're really learning about criticism because they're watching their parents and so parents are teaching their children the very first model of relationship is what parents are demonstrating to their kids the first model of relationship with self and relationship with others is demonstrated by parents unwittingly and unintentionally and unconsciously no parent is setting well most parents are not setting out to hurt their kids however when they're demonstrating the model of a critical mind that's what a child picks up. So the creative mind becomes critical very, very quickly. And then we experience trauma very early on. And that helps us shape our identity. And that's how we form our belief system. But basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to avoid pain at all costs. And ultimately, the biggest lie that we learn as a kid, if you think about this, the biggest lie that we learn as a child is that love comes from someone else. That love comes and love leaves. In other words, unconditional love for a baby soon turns into conditional love at a very early age, in the earliest years of a child's life. Because now what a child starts to do is demonstrate certain behaviors and parents are inflexible. They don't have much patience. They're very busy. They're working. They're tired. They don't have a lot of patience for the young kids. The kids are full of energy, bouncing around all over the place. And soon what a child is learning is that if they're a good child and if they behave themselves in certain ways, they get love. But if they don't, they don't get love. Love is taken away. And that is the false premise that they to lay down in every psychology that then what that does is that if we don't heal that as we get older, then that comes back and it bites us as adults. Yes. Yes. It does. And that's I, why I say I, you have to deal with your stuff. Otherwise, your stuff will deal with you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you've, uh, I know you're on a roll here, but I, I want to interject and, 
and just um, just make sure we're, we're, we're we are clear, but also we're for someone who's listening to this kind of can um, yes. make sure that they're they're following along and kind of processing how this plays out for them. And when you talk yes. about everyone experiences trauma, I want to just pause on that for a second because uh, I think in our society, for the most part, some types of trauma are kind of uh, maybe obvious, right? Whether it's yeah. abuse, you know, physical, emotional, sexual, psychological, whatever it might be, trauma, some sort of accident or event that occurred. Yes. So some things might be very obvious. Are there types of uh, experiences that we might experience as a young child that you could categorize as trauma, but people may not initially consider that to be trauma, but when they do the work, they realize, yes, that, that is considered. I'm just wondering if there's, I don't know what the right way, the right language is. Is there like um, uh, more hidden trauma or more surface level trauma that could be categorized the same way? Yes, that, that, they are. that's a fantastic uh, question and a great point, Chris, um, because you're right. You know, when we, when we talk about trauma, most people would think about obvious trauma, you know, uh, the trauma of an accident or the trauma of a rape or the trauma of a, of a beating, um, a brutal beating or something like that, or the trauma of losing an arm or, you know, that's an obvious trauma. However, what we forget and what, what people are, uh, don't really realize is that we all experience even much more subtle trauma as children. So, for instance, to answer that question and give you an example, it could be something like the very first time you got scolded by your father or your mother mm. and you, and before that it hadn't happened, but that's the first time it happens. And although that may seem very mild to some people or may seem very insignificant to the child, it's not. And we forget that, you know, it's a significant trauma to the child because they've never had that experience before. So what that creates in the body is a vibration. It creates a frequency in the body. If that happens time and time again, or if a child grows up in a family where it's not, shown affection on a regular basis that may seem insignificant to some people because that's just how they grew up too right but what they don't realize is that inability to you know that that, that lack of affection or that lack of significance or that lack of connection at a, at a you know that loving connection that that's traumatic for children now i'm not saying that we should go around and, and cotton wool everybody because i also believe that we have a spiritual curriculum so everything is perfect the way it is however what i am saying is though is that as adults it's great to be an achiever, but at the same time, you need to look underneath what's driving you. Because here's the thing that I've noticed with people that I've worked with over the last 20 years and you know, speaking all around the world and people are the same wherever you go. And what I've noticed is that you know, people who are successful are not necessarily happy, truly happy. Yeah. You know, it, it, when, you, when you encounter someone who's truly happy, it's obvious. It's very obvious and it's, and it's refreshing and it's inspiring. There's, they, they have something about them. There's like an inner energy about them. There's a glow about them. There's like an inner light about them. And, you, and it's like a charisma, right? Because, and it's obvious that they are comfortable in their own skin. But you don't encounter people like that often, you know? It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's one and one, you know, every now and again. But that's an obvious demonstration of somebody who's doing the inner work, right? And, and then, then it comes down back to the same thing as about success and achieving. For most people, that's really just about validation. It's about external validation. And so therefore, they constantly need to keep achieving because there's, it's kind of like a void they need to keep filling. When you have demonstrated, well, when you've done the inner work and you've, and you've really gone to work on yourself at a deeper level and aligned with your authentic self, what that simply means is that you are comfortable in your own skin no matter what shows up, no matter what happens. You feel very comfortable in your own skin in any environment. Uh, you don't have to explain yourself. You don't have to... Um, apologize for yourself. You are comfortable in your own skin. You're happy wherever you show up. 
you've usually got a smile on your face and there's something, you, it's like an internal happiness that is an authentic happiness. You don't need anything to feel happy. You don't need validation. You don't need to own something. You don't need to buy something. You don't need to go to the next level in your life. You don't need to achieve at a higher level in order to you know, have that, that, that happiness or to feel good about yourself. It comes from inside. And that's something that is, when you encounter it, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing because it's a different kind of energy that somebody like that emanates. I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. I think, I don't know, I, I've learned over the years that I'm, I'm very much a kinetic person and uh, I really do pick up on people's vibe or energy and I can read people fairly quickly based on, or at least get an understanding of where they're coming from based on just the, their, their, their sense of presence and, and what vibe you get from them. And mm -hmm. it is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful mm -hmm. thing when you find someone who's, who really is truly shining from the inside. Yes. Um, and, um, what, so, I, what I've, can I add something there? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, go. What, I, what I've found is, um, you know, um, because I often talk to people about, you know, on being on a seesaw or a teeter-totter, you know, yeah. and how we, and how we, how we value things that are good. And the reason we value that they, we value things that are good because good, things that are good, they make us smile and they fit into the box that we like. Anything that's not good that we don't label good, we obviously label bad, right? It's the opposite side. And we put it into a box that we don't like and that makes us, you know, unhappy. But the problem is when we go through life like that, then we are constantly balanced, trying to balance the seesaw and we always, uh, you know, we, we're not happy all the time because there's going to be things that can trigger us, obviously. Mm. Uh, so what I tell people is that if you can really rise up to a higher state of consciousness and exercise universal language of kindness and you're kind to everybody, uh, then you're not, then it doesn't matter whether something's good or bad because you always are looking for the kindness or you are acting in a kind way. And that means you're more compassionate. And so, when you can operate like that, it's a universal language that everyone understands. And coming back to what I've just said just now about somebody who's authentically happy on the inside, not because they have things or not because something happened to them or somebody told them something great, just because they feel great about themselves and they've done, they continue to do the healing work on themselves. Somebody is authentically happy. Those people are generally very kind too. They, they, they demonstrate a kindness to everybody they meet because they've got no fear. You know what I mean? There's no, there's yes. no, they're not worried about what anybody's going to think or they're not constantly looking out for any danger. The unconscious mind or their, their unconscious drive is to avoid pain at all costs. That's the majority of human beings. But that's the fear that we learn as kids. So when you do the inner healing work, that fear goes away. Now you don't have fear of uncertainty. You don't have fear of other people and you're far more likely to interact with people in a much kinder way because you don't you're not suspicious unconsciously and people don't realize that they are like that yes. and that's what trauma produces that's what trauma produces in human beings whether it doesn't matter what kind of trauma it is whether it's a subtle trauma or an intense trauma what it does is it creates a fear in human beings where they are now looking out for anything that may resemble the same kind of danger and they want to avoid that at all costs and well, so when you do by, sorry i just enjoyed I, I was struck yeah. by what you said much earlier on, you kind of showed a kind of a linear relationship or chronological relationship that we all experience trauma. And I love how you've defined the subtle traumas and the examples you give, because I think that expands the, the not the relevance, but expands the, the reference points, I suppose, that people can draw from just for their own work. If they're, if they're following along here and want to, you know, are really engaged in, um, in, in making themselves, in transforming their, themselves or their life in a certain way. But yes. the, the linear relationship that you, you, you said was you all experienced trauma, which, which creates shame, which leads yes. to humiliation, which leads to this afraid of failing. And yes. would you say 
would you say that, uh, I wouldn't say always, but for the vast majority of time, if you reverse engineer that, if someone is, a, you know, has a fear of failure and whatever the case may be in their job and a relationship on a new relationship and as a parent, whatever it is, can you reverse engineer that to say that there's almost a belief going on there that if they're such a, of a fear of failure, if they were to fail, it would be humiliating and humiliation would then would then uh, be rooted by shame, which is probably comes from some sort of trauma. Does it work both ways? Mm. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I think really it's, it's, it's like you said, it's, uh, you, you mentioned shame again. And I think that's, that, that is the biggest thing because most of us are walking around with stuff that we don't want anybody to know about because we are ashamed of that, you know? Um, and, you know, and, you know, it's so common now in any, in any, you know, audience in a workshop, for instance, I did a workshop in London recently and I asked, I said, um, if you're willing to be honest enough, uh, please raise your hand if you've ever experienced physical abuse as a child. Um, and uh, half the room put their hand up. Right? Wow. Um, and then I said, and raise your hand if you've ever been molested as a child. And again, half the room put their hand up. You know, and wow. this, is, this is so common now, you know, so common. Um, you know, because, you know, it, it just children, you know, we've all experienced some kind of something that we're ashamed of that we're hiding that we don't want to, we don't want anybody to know about. So, so really when you do the, the inner healing work and it could be simple, it could be something simple as, you know, um, well, it's not so simple, I suppose, but if you talk about relationship, maybe you had your heart broken or, or perhaps, you know, your, your husband or your wife cheated on you and you don't want, you know, you, you're afraid of that happening again, but at the same time, you don't want people to know about that, you know? So what we're all doing is we're walking around with stuff that we, we don't want anybody to know about. And what that means is we can't be authentic. We can't be present. We can't show up in a very, very, with a very powerful presence because we are unconsciously, we without realizing it, our mind is focusing on what happened in the past. And it's also looking out for any danger in the future that that may happen again. So then we can't be present. It's great to have a memory because we can remember great things. It's great to have a mind that's creative, that can project into the future and can create, you know, images of what we would want to create in the future. But, but also the danger of having an imagination and a memory is that it keeps you away from the present because if you're constantly trying to remember stuff or trying to avoid stuff that happened in the past or trying to forget something that happened in the past and making sure that it doesn't happen again in the future, you're not present. And that means you can't be authentic. So that's why it's so important to do that kind of work, I think, um, is to look in your, into your own life, into your own past and think, well, you know what, you know, what, what, you know who am I? at a deeper level and what is it what is the work that I need to do on myself at a much deeper level so that I can show up in a much more authentic way well and I know Alan you are certainly a guy who's done a lot of a lot of work on yourself over the years not only not only speak with some wisdom in this whole topic but you've lived it as well and you know for for those of the, those who are listening to this and, and aren't familiar with you could you give us a little glimpse of of your story and maybe your journey through the healing process and what what you've learned from that personally and then we'll we can dive back to actually um, talk about that healing process and what someone could do about that. Yeah, sure, Chris. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I grew up in South Africa, and um, I grew up in, a, in a, during uh, when it, when the racism was rough. You know, when it was apartheid, it was very obvious. And I grew up for the first six years of my life. I grew, I lived right next door to a police station, and um, you know, from the from the time I was born to to the age of six, before we moved away from that area, I grew up in in, in Durban on the east coast, and. It, in an area of Durban that was probably the toughest neighborhood in the country, oh, sorry, in the city at that time, you know, the toughest neighborhood in Durban and definitely one of the toughest neighborhoods in the country. And, and I was right next door to a police station. 
So even at the age of four, you know, I was aware of what's happening, was what was happening next door in the police yard because I used to climb on the wall and look over the wall, you know, um, through a gap that nobody knew existed except me. And I didn't tell anybody about the fact that I found this this little perching place where I could watch into the police yard. I couldn't see the whole yard, but I could see enough, you know. And um, uh, you know what I saw at four and a half years of age, you know, was was horrific. You know, I mean, I watched people getting beaten to death. Um, you know, uh, black people by white policemen. And, um, you know, that, that terrified me. You know, it made me feel very, very uncertain, very unsafe. And, um, you know, policemen are supposed to look after you, you know, and there I saw, you know, brutal behavior. And um, that was my first experience, you know, as, as a young boy of, um, of, the kind of, experience, of the kind of environment I was growing up in South Africa. And then, you, you know, I look back on that and say that was, that was a trauma for you? I think, I think, yeah, I think so, man. I think that any child, any a child that sees any that kind of behavior, whether it's a stranger or, or their parents, or, or even on TV, you know, um, you know, watching that kind of behavior, it, it definitely affects the psyche, you know, yes, yes. Uh, whether we like it or not. And um, so we moved away from that area when I was six, moved to a slightly better area. But again, you know, in South Africa at that time, from through '72, you know, through the '70s and '80s, you know, it was a very different country. It was. Uh, the segregation was obvious, you know, there was a lot of violence around and, and I was, I grew up in tough neighborhoods uh, where there was, you know, a lot of fighting in the streets, etc. Always a lot of police presence, uh, that kind of thing. And then, you know, I went to boarding school. Uh, I was bullied throughout my schooling years. You know, I was a tiny little kid. I was teased a lot. I was told I was ugly all the time. I began to believe that at a young age, you know, and um, on top of that, I didn't, I believed that my parents didn't have a lot of time for me because they were always working and they were always, they were very strict. And so my perception was that my parents just, you know, they just didn't want me to have fun. And, uh, and they sent me away to boarding school at 14, which then confirmed the fact that mama, they didn't have any time for me. And uh, so when I came out of boarding school, I went straight into the military. Uh, by that, you know, before I even got into the military, I had very low self-esteem. I was very self-conscious about the way I looked. And, you know, I was in my head all the time. I had a very, very unhappy childhood in terms of being a teenager. And then at, you know, not even barely, barely 19, I went into the military and I was trained in all kinds of different disciplines. And then I was trained to use a patrol mortar pipe and an RPG-7 rocket launcher. And uh, in, in 1987, I was deployed in Angola during the height of the Civil War on a top secret mission. Nobody was allowed to know we were there. Uh, South Africa was breaking the Geneva Convention at the time because we were not supposed to be in Angola. It was illegal. So we were sworn to secrecy. There were 5,000 of us that went up there and uh, we went to, uh, you know, to war with 52,000 enemy that were led by Russians and Cubans, uh, Russian artillery, Russian tanks, Russian jets. And uh, it was intense seven months of uh, close combat, you know, um, and uh, I had to use my patrol mortar pipe and my RPG-7 rocket launcher to protect my buddies and, as I was trained to do. And I did that. Uh, however, you know, when I came back seven months later, uh, having lost lots of buddies, you know, right next to me and... Um, you know, and having obviously, you know, used my weapons to, to take lives of enemy, um, you know, I had to then process that experience. And that was, you know, extremely traumatic for me. I had post-traumatic stress for nine years. I had nightmares for seven years. Um, very shortly after I got home, well, as soon as I got home, I just kind of locked myself in my bedroom. And um, I drank myself to sleep every day because I didn't want to have these nightmares that I was having. Um, so it was a tough time for me. And, um, you know, I just kind of tried to block it out. Uh, through through alcohol and drugs and then uh, six months after I got home it was July of 1988 I was 21 years of age I was uh, six months into my 21st year and I was walking to get my my daily intake of alcohol 
um, and uh, bumped into a friend of mine and he was the one who introduced me to psychology. He introduced me to Think and Grow Rich, the book Think and Grow Rich, and he introduced me to the subject of personal development. He took me up to his flat. We bumped into each other in the street, actually. We were talking. He was in the military at the same time as me. He was a good friend of mine before in the military. He asked me where I'd been. I said, I've been all over the place. He said, hey, I've been in Angola in a helicopter flying into Angola to take out all the, all the wounded soldiers and all the, the dead soldiers back to South Africa uh, as a medivac. And I said, yeah, I was on the front line of that operation. And uh, he was astounded that I was, you know, I'd made it through that experience and was still alive in one piece. And um, he invited me up to his flat. We had a long conversation uh, and he had all these books in his flat, you know, all over the floor and piles of books. And, and uh, he was extremely mature for 21 years of age. And um, I do call Malcolm my, one of my angels. Unfortunately, he was killed in a car accident several years after that. But, he, you know, he's, I still consider him an angel. But he was the one who really said to me, Alan, uh, you know, you've been through a traumatic experience and what you need to do is you need to really, you need to study the mind. You need to read inspirational literature. And he, then he said, start with this book. And he gave me Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, which most people have heard of. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, that, was, that was my introduction to, to, you know, personal development and success um, psychology. And so what I did was I became a student that day. That was the first time I considered myself a student. I was an E4, E4 enough student at school. I wasn't academically minded. My parents sent me to two private schools, which cost a fortune. They never let me forget it. Um, they wanted me to have a good education, but I was never going to get into university. But that day, in 21 years of age, in July of 1988, when I opened the front cover of that Thinking We Rich and I began to read the first few pages, I became a student that day. And um, that was the first time I actually enjoyed reading. And I haven't really, well, it's 32 years later, I haven't stopped reading, really. I've been studying ever since. And, um, but, uh, that was the beginning of the journey, you know? So then what I did was then, um, it was a long time bef before I began to process what I'd been through in the army because I kind of had suppressed it. But then I, I got, you know, fully into things like thinking we're rich and obviously Brian Tracy, you know, Les Brown, Zig Ziglar, Jim Rohn, Dennis Waitley. You know, I was listening to these cassette tapes that my friend yeah, also had. Yeah. And, and then I started selling. I got into sales. I'd already been in sales from the age of 16, but I used to sell stuff that was illegal. But now at 21 years of age, I got my first sales job. Um, and I began to sell and I was applying what I was learning in all these books, you know, the power of positive thinking, Normandin's Peel, all these. And I, and, and I started having, you know, I was enjoying it. You know, I was, I was applying what I was reading. But at the same time, uh, you know, I had suppressed, you know, what, it, what I'd experienced. And I was, um, uh, you know, I was drinking a lot. I was taking a lot of drugs. So I wasn't happy. You know, I wasn't very happy inside. I had a mask. Uh, I, I formed this, this, this facade, you know, this mask. And I pretended to be happy, but I wasn't. Um, but I was enjoying what I was reading. And, uh, you know, then I decided to leave South Africa. It was 1990, the beginning of 1990. I arrived in London and the very first book I bought was Unlimited Power by Tony Robbins. And that was my introduction to NLP and Tony's work. And I bought some cassette tapes of Tony's in that same shop in Victoria Station in London. And I began to listen to Tony on cassette. And it was Giant Steps and Awaken the Giant within two cassette tapes that I bought that were for sale there. And I began to listen to Tony and, you know, he made so much sense. And, you know, I just, and I, then I read the, the next book when it came out, Awaken the Giant Within. And then he wrote notes from a friend uh, and, you know, I became a big Tony fan uh, and I was listening to lots of other people. I also went through landmark education in the, in the early nineties, um, you know, 93, 94, I did landmark forum. Then I did the community, the, the advanced course, the communication course, the self-expression and leadership program. I then became, I then studied, I, w I went on to the forum leaders program. I was going to be the landmark forum leader for South Africa. And um, then by that stage, it was about 1999. And 
and that's when I did my first UPW and I decided to change direction and, and, uh, and, you know, I went to my first UPW. I decided not to go back to South Africa and, and be the forum leader there and uh, for Landmark. And, um, and, you know, at that stage in 1999, when I went to my first UPW in Cardiff, Wales, it was, uh, there was only about 1500 people in the room and I really needed it. I was, in a, I was in a very, very dark place. I, my head was full of knowledge. And I often asked, I asked my audiences all the time, raise your hand if you believe knowledge is power. And most people put their hand up and I say, that's BS. You know, BS in terms of a belief system. You can believe knowledge is power, but really, it's not a powerful belief because knowledge is not power. Because people absorb knowledge and they don't use anything. They don't use it. They don't do anything with it. And I was one of those people. My head was full of knowledge. I had a fantastic memory. I'd read hundreds of books, been to so many workshops, had so many cassette programs, etc. And by that stage, I was, we were listening to you know, um, CDs that come out, you know, and I had all these CD programs, but I wasn't doing anything with that knowledge. And I was in a very dark place in, in 99 and I was working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, 84 hours a week. I was suicidal. I was addicted to cocaine and I had been using drugs for 15 years by that stage, 15 years of, of um, you know, uh, substance abuse. And uh, I saw an advert in the paper for Tony Robbins and um, I decided right there and then I had to make, I had to find, I had to make a way to get to that workshop. And so I made it happen. I got to that workshop and that's when everything changed for me. Yeah. Uh, well, and we'll explore that just in just a little bit, but I think it's an, it's an incredible, powerful story. And I'm glad you did. You've shared that. I'm glad you've done the own work. So you, uh, your own work, so you can be, be so authentic. And I think when people understand your story, I think there's an extra depth to the words that you are sharing and the wisdom that you're sharing with them. And I'm wondering now, when you look back on all that story mm-hmm. from your, from the wisdom that you have and the work that you've done on yourself, what do you think was driving you? What was the driver, the motive for you to be addicted to drugs for 15 years and, and uh, carry that while you were still, you know, on the surface, you might've been presenting yourself one way. What was the motive for, for the, the, the abuse there? Yeah, for for me it was I I always craved my father's love, Rod, right? and um and so for me, it was getting lost in the clubbing scene and taking drugs, and that allowed me to forget about my problems and allowed me to forget that my that I was that I was unhappy or that um that I didn't like myself or that I didn't like who I saw in the mirror, and so you know when I got high, all my problems went away, and then well, you know when I when I, when I came down, then they came back, and then I would get you know then so then I'd get high again. So, yeah. um, but what was driving me was uh, um, you know I, I, significance really. You know I was craving love. You know I craved attention because I never got it. You know and uh, and because I felt I felt so. You know I really despised who, who, myself. You know I was I had total self-loathing. I didn't like anyone. I didn't like the person I saw in the mirror. So so I was always looking for you know I was looking for ways to be loved, you know, and I would do crazy things to do that. And so that scene, what it did is it allowed me to forget myself and lose myself, you know, for periods of time. Um, well, I think what's, but, uh, what's, what's again, um, I think really important for people to take away from that is we all have coping mechanisms. Some people yes. go down the route of, of burying themselves in their work so they can escape mm. their personal life and leave their problems of, at home at home. And so they work excessive hours. Some people, yes. you know, pour themselves into exercise and they burn themselves out through exercise because they're trying to escape something. And some people go to substance abuse and yeah. again, whichever the vice is, there's no judgment on it, but I think it's really important and, and very much a part of the healing process for people to recognize 
what are their own coping mechanisms or, or yes. of escaping? Yeah. And, um, and you know, you, you've mentioned many times here, they have to do the healing work. Yes. So, so take us through, um, I guess you can mix it up however you like, whether it's your own yeah. personal experience, but what kind of what you know to be true, what are these fundamentals of healing? And maybe just even, def- maybe just even define that. Cause you know, as you said earlier, it's a, maybe a little bit of, um, an easy place to, to enter for some people. Yeah. So again, how do you warm someone up to the idea they need to heal and how do you get them started on that process? Okay. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. And, and you know what, what, what I want to share for that question is, or the answer is for me, when I was, you know, when I went to UBW, I had this amazing experience at UBW and I just decided, okay, that's it. I'm done. Right. And I got sober and I, and I arrived at UBW four days sober. And, oh, sorry, um, sorry, Alan, just in direct. Just for those who don't, aren't familiar, UPW is? Oh, yes. Unleash the Power Within, which is Tony's workshop, four-day workshop, Tony Robbins. And, yep. and so I attended the workshop and I arrived there four days sober. And on the, after the four-day program, I came out the other side and I thought, wow, that's it. You know, and I was so committed and I, and I, and, and I, began, to, I began to practice what I'd learned. And, uh, and then everything changed. But what really changed, when it really changed for me, it was when I, two months later, I was now at Life Mastery, which is another program that Tony used to, uh, facilitate in in Hawaii, and it was a nine-day program. And I arrived there two months after I've done my UPW. I'm still on a high. You know, I've had two amazing months. I'm clean. I've been clean for two months, sober for two months. I changed everything. Changed the way I ate. You know, I stopped drinking coffee. You know, uh, um, I I even became a vegan, and I was really practicing everything I'd learned. But really, when when it really shifted for me, when I began to really deal with my stuff that I hadn't dealt with, my own inner demons and the stuff that I'd suppressed from my youth and especially the military stuff was when I was in Hawaii and um, I had this experience, you know, where I, where I was sitting by this beautiful waterfall at this beautiful man-made resort and it was two o'clock in the morning. And, uh, you know, I was on a, you know, I was feeling fantastic because I'm in this beautiful paradise. I've just had this amazing UPW experience two months before that. Now I'm in Hawaii. I'm having this fantastic experience and I'm feeling really good. I'm feeling like my life is changing. I'm feeling really, I'm starting to feel like, you know, wow, I'm moving in, I'm moving in the right direction now. And so I sat by the waterfall and then suddenly it just came out because let me just give you some context quickly. I went to two Catholic schools. I went to two Catholic schools and also I went to Sunday school from the age of four. So I had a lot of religious dogma shoved into my brain right through my youth. So now it's many years later, I've, you know, I'm, I'm, I've come into terms with the fact that I've killed hundreds of people in Angola with my patrol mortar pipe and my RPG seven rocket launcher. And, uh, and, 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 and I keep remembering thou shalt not kill, right? One of the 10 commandments. So I'm sitting in Hawaii and uh, it's two o'clock in the morning and I just, just, I just start talking out loud. I say, Hey God, listen, you know what? Um, it's been a long time since we had a conversation and uh, you know, I think the last time I spoke to you, I cursed you and uh, you know, I'm in this beautiful paradise and I'm having this amazing transformation that's taking place inside of me. I can feel it. And I said, I'm ready to go to the next level. And I realize now that I really need to forgive myself and really need to let the past go and, uh, and really, you know, come to terms with the fact that it happened and, um, and really just allow myself off the hook. And I said, I realized that in order for me to do that, um, I really want to invoke the spirits of the soldiers that I killed in Angola to come and bless me at this moment and forgive me. And Chris, I can tell you right now, that place where I was sitting, it was, you know, it's two o'clock in the morning. It's dark. The hotel's on the other side of the lagoon. It's a man-made lagoon. There's a waterfall on my left. The whole place started vibrating, man. It was just like the colors got brighter. And then it felt like someone came behind me and wrapped a blanket of love around me. And I just began to cry. I just cried and I cried. And in that same moment, 
the surface of the water, which was about three feet below me, because I was on the edge of the bank of the lagoon, and the surface of the water broke, and the head of a turtle popped out, and it looked straight at me, and it took a breath, and then it disappeared under the water. It was about a three-second connection with this turtle. We just locked eyes, and it was like a confirmation from the universe, and I just began to sob with gratitude, you know, and I just really felt like, wow, you know, the universe has heard my, you know, God's heard my prayer. And, um, and then I couldn't sleep after that, and uh, I was awake all night. I was, you know, laying in a hammock down by the water's edge, and uh, the next morning, uh, we went into the room, and then, you know, I happened to get the microphone, and two months before that, in my Unleash the Power Within weekend, I had this conversation with Tony 101 where I spoke about Angola and, and it was an amazing experience. Now, two months later, uh, you know, after this amazing experience with this waterfall and this turtle, I'm in the room and the next morning, Tony said, who wants to share something? I put my hand up. I said, me, I get the microphone. And I said to Tony, I said, listen, before I share, can I make an unreasonable request? And he says, yeah, what's your unreasonable request? And uh, he, I said, can I come up on the stage and share? So he said, yeah, sure, come up here. And I ran up on the stage. And uh, he obviously remembered me from our, from our, our intervention two months before in Cardiff, Wales. And um, I stood on that stage and I told everybody about my, 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 the night before when I, you know, I had this experience with the turtle and that, the, the prayer that I sent out to the universe and, 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 you know, and, how, and what a night I had you know, and what a, what a release I felt in myself. And, um, and this is where it really got amazing. After I came down the stage, this guy came up to me and gave me a hug. And obviously, you know, everyone was giving me hugs. It was an amazing experience. And I was just, um, you know, I was, I was smiling ear to ear because I really felt like I had let something go. I really felt like I'd moved to a different level inside myself. But this man came up to me and he said, hey, have you ever heard of Neil Donald Walsh? And I said, no. So he said, well, Neil Donald Walsh, he wrote a book called Conversations with God. He actually wrote three books, book one, two, and three, a trilogy. And he said, my message for you is to read those books, to get those books. So I said, thank you very much. I will do that. And on the way back from Hawaii, after the program was over, I was at a, you know, I was changing planes at LAX in Los Angeles, and I found those books in the airport, and I began to read them. And I can tell you right now that Neil Donald Walsh is my favorite author, because those books were really just what I needed at that particular time of my life, because I was conflicted about my, what I'd been taught about religion, although it didn't really ever resonate with me, and all the stuff that I'd read in the interim before I got to that particular place in my life in Hawaii that year in 1999, I'd read lots of stuff on physics and quantum physics and energy, etc. So my philosophy, I was beginning to form in my mind that everything is connected. There's no accidents. That, that I'm a firm believer, believer of that. And so when I opened those books, you know, Conversation with God, book one, two, and three, it really spoke to me. It spoke to my soul. It's not, it's not religion in any way. It's not religious. But it is about the truth that energy is everything. Everything is energy and we are all made of the same energy and, you know, and we are effectively, we are human manifestations of this beautiful energy of the universe, right? And we are individual forms of the same energy. We are individual forms of this divine energy. And so I just, this, these books just resonated with me. It's, 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 you know, we have this knowing inside of us and it spoke to my knowing and I just thought, wow, this is it. You know, this is what I've always believed inside my soul, right? In my heart. And then that's when I really began my own healing process. Um, because then what I did is I started to really practice on a daily basis, healing pro healing practices, healing processes. I started to practice Ho'oponopono. Uh, so I've so, been practicing. So, I was gonna ask you, yeah, so what, what are the practices that worked for you? And again, thank you for sharing all, all the, all that story. I, I love the um, I love how the universe conspires to give you moments and give you experiences that really do set you on a different trajectory. But you, Absolutely. You, you still had to do work. 
Um, yes, so what, of course, every the, day. What's the work that you have found that has worked, worked for you if you stay, stay within the healing context? Yes, what really worked for me was looking in the mirror and just looking at myself and saying, hey, Alan, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I love you. Thank you. The Ho'oponopono phrases. You know, a lot of people have heard about the Ho'oponopono phrases. I'm sorry, please forgive me. I love you. Thank you. Four phrases. That, and that Ho'oponopono, it originates from the Hawaiian culture. And uh, it's in, those four phrases are very energetic. They're very powerful. And uh, you can direct them at anyone, including yourself. So what I did was I'd, I'd, I'd heard about it before. I'd heard about it from Wayne Dyer. And, um, and then so what I began to do is I, I read up about it. I studied the background of it and then I thought, okay, cool. I'm going to do that. I'm going to practice this with myself and I'm going to do it daily. And so then what I did was I got a photograph of myself as a kid. I've got three or four photographs of myself as a young boy, ranging between the ages of 18 months to like six, six or seven years of old, six and seven years of age. And I looked at those photographs, you know, um, different ones at different times that I'd look at the photograph and I'd look at that little boy and I'd try and connect with that little boy in me and, you know, and remember how, how afraid he was. And then I would say, you know, Alan, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I love you. Thank you. And what I was doing is I was saying, I'm sorry for making decisions as a young boy that didn't serve me or didn't support the truth of who I was. Uh, for instance, I made decisions like I'm not good enough. You know, I'm ugly. I'm, I'm not intelligent. You know, nobody loves me. You know, my dad doesn't love me. I'm unlovable, etc. And then when I came out of the army, that just, that just kind of, you know, cemented those beliefs because then I believed that even God can't love me now because I've killed these people. Right. So, um, so what I did was I just practiced that on a daily basis, you know, and, and, and I did breath work and, um, and I, uh, you know, I, 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 I contemplated, you know, the, the experiences I had as a kid, you know, when I was bullied, when I was beaten up, when, you know, the things that I'd seen, you know, I contemplated them and I asked myself questions like, okay, if, if we are energy and we are all experiencing, we're experiencing ourselves in human form as energetic, as energy, we are spiritual beings having a human experience for a short period of time. So we've come from energy and we return to energy. So while we here as matter, how can my life matter? You know, uh, how can I make sure my life matters? And then I ask myself questions like, what is the spiritual reason for these experiences? You know, what is it that I've come to learn and to remember? You know, why, why, why would I have gone through Angola? Like, how can that serve me? You know, and then I began to believe, I began to build a belief that, well, if I've had that kind of experience, then there must be a deeper reason for that. There must be a bigger meaning for that. And, uh, and, and then I began to arrive at the, at the, the, the understanding that perhaps, you know, if I were able to get to the point where I could acknowledge that I've been through that experience and forgive myself for it and recognize that it was part of my journey and that it can serve me going forward, then how can it serve other people? And that's when I began to ask myself the question, you know, how can I use my past to serve others? How can I use my own challenges? How can I use my own, my own pain and my own transformation, my own insights, my own, my own understanding to serve other people? And that's when, I, that's when I began to speak and I began to share my story with other people. And the more I shared my story, the more, the more it healed me because yes. I began, you know, nobody likes sharing Nobody likes sharing parts of themselves that, that they don't want anybody to know about. And I was exactly the same. And in the beginning, it was terrifying. But the more I did it, the more cathartic it became, the more, the more healing it became, the more releasing it became, the more, the more I was able to release, you know, that, that, that trauma and that, um, that, 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 that traumatic charge in my system. And I firmly believe that saved my life, man, you know, yeah. truly, because, because had I not done that, you know, I would have been, you know, I would have just been, I would have, I would have never exercised those demons. And now, now I look, now I look back at Angola and I can honestly say that was a blessing because I've had a lot of spiritual experiences since then. 
I've had um, you know some some amazing things happen that most people would think that were are crazy, but I, but I believe that it's you know that it's because I believe in energy and I believe in the yeah. spiritual realm and I believe that we are we are only here for a short while as human beings and we are actually spiritual beings. We come from this amazing energy source. So, 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 many, so many really important distinctions in everything you said there, and I want to come back to a couple of them. First yes. one I, I love to come back to is um, what I find very very interesting, and I think it's a really important really important distinction is when you decided it's time to forgive. You started with yourself. You yes. weren't forgiving your father. You weren't forgiving for not loving you. You weren't forgiving your mother for being hard or sending you off to school. You weren't forgiving the military leaders to sending you into a civil war. You forgave yourself. Yes. Can you just talk about, again, again for someone who really re is resonating with what you're saying or, or with some of your experiences, I think by and large in our cultures, the idea of forgiveness is usually directed at someone else. You know, I'm gonna, I, will, yes. I can forgive that person for harming me and I hope to move on from that. But why, why did you focus on you and not others? And what difference because, do you think that makes? Because, because, what I, because what I've been reading and what, what made sense to me and what resonated with me was that we cannot truly be happy or successful if we, if we are not aligned with, our, with, our true, with ourselves. And so I was so out of alignment with myself. Because I was, um, I, because I, I, I hated myself, right? I hated the person I saw in the mirror, and I abused myself, and I, you know, all the drugs that I took, and you know, all that. That was a way of abusing myself and proving to myself that I wasn't worthy. So, so I had to, I had to forgive myself for all of that. I had to say to myself, "Listen, man, I'm sorry." I looked in the mirror, and I used to look at the little boy, the photographs of the little boy, and say, hey, "I'm so sorry that I, that I, that I've beaten you up so much, that I've, that I've resented you so much, that I've hated you so much." To, to, because really, I wanted to come. To a place in myself where I was, where I was happy being me, because I was unhappy being me. I was so unhappy being me my whole, my whole, my, my whole life, right? It was, and I knew that I needed to come to a place in myself where I was happy being me, because then that would allow me to be able to forgive everyone else, because I wasn't be able to forgive everyone else if I hadn't yet forgiven myself, because it just makes it harder to do that. Um, and I knew that if I could come to a place in myself where I was comfortable being me, and I was comfortable with the experiences I've had. And I was, and I could come to a place where I was not gonna, when I was not beating myself up anymore, and I wasn't resenting myself, and wasn't resenting the person I saw in the mirror. I knew that that would make life a lot easier for me, and a lot easier for me to interact with other people. And that's exactly what happened. Um, you, and then, you, yeah, were you tempted to turn the attention or turn the direction of your forgiveness towards others? Was that ever part of? Oh yeah, for sure. I did that too. I did that yeah. too. Definitely. I, you know, I, I, I remember I phoned my dad even before that, actually in 1994, when I was in the landmark forum, I, I remember I went out of the room on the Saturday inspired by the conversation that the forum leader had been having with, with the facilitator of the workshop was, was having a conversation with a young guy who was talking about his relationship with his father. And I went out of the room straight after that. And I phoned my dad and I said, dad, don't talk. I need to tell you something. And I need to tell you a few things. And I told my dad, about all the times I had made him wrong, and all the, and how much I hated him as a kid, and and how much, uh, you know, and how I blamed him for everything in my life. And then I just said, I realized that you know that that's so untrue. You know, I realized that now nah, that you've only ever done the best you can, you know, for me to have, for have a good education. And I know that you love me. I just know that, and I know that you maybe you don't demonstrate that, that in the way I wanted to to demonstrate that, but it doesn't mean you don't love me. And I and I realized that by me blaming you. I realized that I'm the one who's built the wall between us. So, um, so that was, that was, you know, I, I had already been working on that with my dad for a while. Uh, but yes, I directed my forgiveness at, at, at all the people that I felt had wronged me when I was young, you know, 
Um, I can remember instances in my life, just like we all can. Everyone who's listening to this can remember certain instances in their life as a kid when they were maybe beaten by another kid in a playground or made fun of, et cetera. So I thought of all those instances too. And I thought of all those people and I just directed that forgiveness at them too. And you know what, what forgiveness actually means. And I know people, a lot of people struggle with forgiveness because they think, well, I can't, I can't ever forgive that person for doing that to me. But really what it actually means to forgive is to let go of the resentment that you're holding in yourself for that person. Because you, because holding resentment for anybody is only hurting you. And I knew that I had so much resentment in me for everything, just like everything in life. Right? I resented so much that I knew that it was just killing me from the inside, and I was, and it was making me so unhappy. And I was miserable. You know, I was depressed. You know, for a long time, I was angry all the time, and that's why I took drugs. You know, because it, it got me out of my pain for short periods of time. And I realized that if I, if I was ever going to get to a place where I could be happy with a person I saw in the mirror and just, you know, generally be happy, I would have to really go inside. Until I could, until I got to that place, you know. Yeah, I often talk about the, um, you know, some of the things where there's there's always two sides to success. There's the acquire, the achieve, the push, the grow, the learn side of things, learning new skills and acquiring things. The other part that's often underestimated is the letting go, the releasing, yes. the freeing yourself. And I, both you and I, uh, are having similar paths and similar work now. We both know that the greatest transformation for people happens when they focus or do the work on the yes. release and the let, let go side of the equation. And, um, and the other key distinction that um, you said in your story there was really the perspective and the belief that everything serves a purpose. And perhaps yes. the most, even the most horrific experiences must serve a higher purpose. Absolutely. When you look back that. on that again, when you look back on that again now, you think back to your experience in Angola and other life experiences. Do you think it would have been possible at the time to see the higher purpose? No, at the time, no. I remember actually when I, re when I read Thinking We're Rich for the first time at 21 years of age and I came across that phrase in the book when Napoleon Hill says, every adversity has within it the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. I remember when I read that line for the first time, my brain said, that's bullshit. Hmm. I can... You know, I've just come out of the army, right? I've just come out of Angola, right? And I've just been in the, in, in, you know, in the most horrific, horrific environment, you know, and watching people getting blown to bits. How can that be beneficial? How can there be any equivalent or greater benefit than that? But what I did was I wrote that sentence down and I contemplated that sentence over and over and over. And I kept asking myself, what does he mean by that? But now looking back, I can say with absolute conviction that it's true. You know, every adversity does have the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. And to give you a, a, a real example of that, how everything is connected and how, you know, everything does serve and there is a reason for things. You know, I, I've been speaking in Russia for about five, six years now. And um, I was in Russia in 2017 on a tour and I went to 12 different cities and three of those cities, three different men in three different cities came up to me after my day of training when I include my story about Angola and three of those men, three in three different cities came up to me and said, Alan, I was in Angola 30 years ago fighting against you. I was, wow. I was, I was in the Russian army fighting against you in Angola. Goosebumps. And I, man, it blew me away, man. Um, the first time it happened, it just like, I was, I was, I was dumbfounded, right? I just, uh, and I said to the guy, I said, can I take a picture? And he said, no, well, I'm still in the military. I don't want you. So I said, well, it's just for me, please, so that I can, you know, uh, just so that I can know that this is tomorrow when I wake up and next week when I wake up and next month that I know this is real. And, uh, and he, he said, yeah, okay. 
And um, so I took a picture for, with two of those guys, but the third guy wouldn't let me take a picture. He was still an officer in the military. But, um, you know, can you imagine that? 30 years ago, these three guys who were there in Angola fighting against me, and they three of them come up to me in these three different cities and said, listen, thank you so much for coming to the city and telling your story so, so with so much transparency because now I realize that I need to go home to my family and I need to really, I need to, I need to, you know, bridge the gap of communication. That is, there's a gap of communication because I've, I've never let them in, you know, because I'm, you know, the military has affected me in the same way that it affected you. And, you know, and, and, I, and, and my family, you know, I need to really let my family back in. So that's, you know, that's how, and that just made me think, wow, isn't that amazing? Right? Like 30 years later, I bumped to these three guys who were there in the military and how many people, you know, are affected by that kind of experience. So, you know, everything is connected, you know, and uh, everything does serve a higher purpose. And, you know, and I really firmly believe that we are here on earth for a spiritual curriculum and our soul has come here. Our soul manifests into these bodies for, for its own spiritual curriculum. It wants to come and remember stuff. It wants to come and experience stuff. And so, you know, when we look back at, at our past trauma, it serves a purpose, but we only discover the real deeper purpose when we are willing to do the work of healing. Yes. And so if someone, I, I totally agree with that. Again, if someone is listening to this and they're, you know, they're, they're nodding their head and they can relate to all the concepts you're talking about and they, they, they are starting to open up to that, maybe they're at that stage of life where they're, they're, they want to venture down that path. And as you said yes. earlier, it can be very uncomfortable to, to yes. look back at some of that stuff. So again, how, you know, if someone's listening to this and they want to put some of this into action, where do you, where would you guide people to begin with? Or what are the action steps that you might suggest to someone who wants to do it, but is hesitant or just knows it's going to be a bit, um, you know, a bit ugly through that? Yes. How do you manage? I guess the question is, where do they start? And what would you say to them to help manage their expectations of the process? Well, what I would do is, first place I would start is I would read. Um, I would read a few books. Uh, I can suggest a few books. And also what I would do is I would, I would read up about Ho'oponopono. And um, I would read the book that Joe, Dr. Joe Vitale co-wrote with Dr. Hugh Len. And Dr. Hugh Len is one of the, one of the most, you know, he's very famous um, and very famously associated to the practice of Ho'oponopono because of that famous story. I don't know if you remember that story. You know, he was yeah. the clinical psychologist in Hawaii that practiced Ho'oponopono with all those um, clinically insane uh, people who were diagnosed clinically insane people who were there for rape and murder and very very you know very violent criminals and he you know he did that work with them and he he helped to heal a lot of those people um, so that book called Zero Limits is people can read that that gives a good background on Ho'oponopono and uh, how to use the practice but I would say to people is you know there's certain books you can read you know Byron Katie's work uh, Byron Katie, she's got something called the work where you do the work on yourself and you really, it's about understanding your ego mind and how your ego separates you from yourself and separates from other people. And, and because of, because of the fact that you're trying to protect yourself and it's all linked back to your, your own trauma as a child. And then also reading books like, um, loyalty to your soul. Um, so you can understand, um, perhaps, you know, the, the, the metaphysical, the metaphysical part of life. Um, because, you know, we are looking at life through such a small window of the conscious mind. There's so much more that we don't even understand. There's the unconscious mind. There's the superconscious. There's this universal mind that we're all connected to, you know. And so I would say to people, you know, really explore that. Read those kinds of books. 
um, explore Ho'oponopono. And also breath work. I found breath work very, very powerful. I've done a lot of breath work. And breath work, what it does is it helps you to release trauma that's trapped in your body. What people don't realize is that a lot of the traumatic experiences they had as kids, they've they've repressed those experiences and they and it's in the unconscious and they're not even aware of that. But it plays out in their daily life even without realizing it. Um, so dysfunctional behavior is often a result of, of unhealed trauma. So when people start reading about those kinds of books and start exploring things like breath work, what it helps them to do is it helps them to bring that stuff to the surface. Now, it's not easy. Of course, it's not. Uh, however, the rewards are unbelievable. The rewards are, the, you, you, you can't even describe it, the rewards because really what it is, ultimately what it leads to is internal peace of mind. And there's nothing more valuable than peace of mind. Uh, and peace of mind simply means when you have no chatter inside your head, you know, when there's less chatter in your head, you've got less thoughts passing through your mind, you're more present, you know, you're more, you observe more, you notice more, you know, you notice the good and everything, you notice the innocence and in things, you, you smile more, you know, you're kinder, you're more compassionate, you know, those are the things that rise to the surface naturally, because that's who we are at our essence, we are compassionate, kind souls, you know, we are kind beings at our essence, we are loving beings at our essence, but we we forget that because it's all kind of covered up by all the painful experiences you've had. That's why it's so important to do that work because it releases that natural and that, the authentic you, yes. you know, and the authentic you is compassionate and kind and loving. So that's the reward. And you can't put a price on that, man. No, you certainly can't. And we'll be sure to include all the, the links to those books that you've referenced in, in the show notes. Um, I really enjoyed the time we've spent here, Alan. And uh, before I ask the final question, where could someone find out more about you and your work or get in touch with you? Uh, they, they, if they just Google my name, Alan Kainhans, or they just you can find me on Facebook or Instagram or, you know, uh, thanks, Chris, for that question. I appreciate that. But yeah, if they Google my name and then uh, yeah, I'm on all the social media platforms, etc. I've got a website, alanspeaks.com. And um, yeah, so right. I like connecting we'll with people links. online. Yeah, we'll uh, include those links as well. My Thanks, final, question, final question for you today, Alan, on the Ignition Show is what do you hope to ignite in the world? Even more love, even more kindness, even more compassion. Well, the world definitely needs that. So I, I appreciate the work that's that you've really done. That's, that's, that's what I hope to inspire in each of my audiences. You know, I've got this tagline. My tagline is um, transforming global consciousness. And, I, and, I, and you know, my, my intention is to do that one audience at a time or one person at a time. So, yeah, I would love to ignite even more love, even more kindness, even more compassion. And, um, and I try and be an example of that wherever I go. You know? And it's not easy because obviously the mind always tricks us up all the time. But, I've, but I practice it. I practice it all the time. And, uh, and I'm getting better and better. And then, you know, and, and, and it's amazing when you do that because what happens is it just raises your frequency, which is another great book for your listeners. And, uh, and you, Chris, if you've ever heard of the book Frequency by Penny Pierce, an outstanding book about how to raise your frequency in terms of, you know, being a higher frequency being, which then means you attract higher frequency experiences, which is yes. uh, really what life is all about, is about raising your consciousness. So I appreciate you having me on your show and I appreciate you asking me that question. And I've really enjoyed my time with you, my friend. Well, very good, Alan. And uh, I've enjoyed the time with you as always. And um, uh, thank you very much for the work that you do. It's certainly uh, raising consciousness. If the world ever needed that now, now is a good time. So thank you for being you, Alan. Thank you for being so authentic. And thanks for sharing all your wisdom with us today. We'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Chris. 
We want you to get the most from the time you've invested listening here. The show is only valuable if you apply what you learn, and most learning is generated from reflection. So we'd love to hear from you and your reflections about what you learned or found interesting. Join the community and go to theignitionshow.com slash connect and let us know what struck you. What was it that you heard today that you really needed to hear today? You can leave us an audio message or join our Facebook group and participate in the conversation there. Just go to Facebook and search for The Ignition Show, where we'd love to hear your comments and follow-up questions. Also, be sure to check out the after show of this episode. That's a shorter follow-up episode where we, that's my wife and business partner, Sarah and I, talk about what we learned from this interview and how these ideas have shown up in our lives on a more personal level. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate the show, or leave a review in iTunes. It helps others find us and helps us get better. We read every single review and comment that comes through iTunes, Facebook, and our website and respond to as many people as we can. And lastly, remember, whatever you dream of, whatever you hope for, and secretly wish you had, you're closer than you think you are, you're meant to have it, and you absolutely deserve it. Until next time, I'm Chris Jansen, and this is The Ignition Show.